Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. The Bible today, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at Mark chapter 12. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles there. It's on page 848 in the Pew Bible if you want to use one ahead of you. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark and we're in the final week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. We've looked particularly in the last couple of weeks of Jesus' conflict with the Jewish leaders. We've seen him flip over their money tables in the temple. We've seen him challenge their response to John the Baptist's ministry. We've seen him enact a prophetic judgment against a fig tree that appeared to be alive but was actually barren and fruitless. But today we're coming to Jesus' most direct confrontation yet. You know, Jesus' parables are probably some of the most well-known parts of his ministry. You know, the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the good Samaritan, uh, or the parable of the treasure in the field, and so on. But Mark, in his gospel, actually includes only two parables in in the whole gospel. He includes the parable of the sower in chapter 4, and now this parable of the tenants in chapter 12. So when Mark does include a parable, we should pay careful attention uh, to what he is saying And this parable is declaring Jesus' explicit judgment on the Jewish leaders for their rejection of Christ. And that's what we want to consider this morning. So if you would, follow with me. We're going to read Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. But he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And God, I pray that you would use your word to encourage us this morning and draw us to Jesus that we might know him better. We pray this in his name. Amen. My guess is that every one of us knows the purpose of a mirror. The purpose of a mirror is pretty straightforward. It's supposed to give you an accurate reflection of what you look like. And, and sometimes that's a lot of fun. For instance, last night, uh, my youngest daughter uh, ate a packet of Fun Dip 
for her dessert. Now, if you know what Fun Dip, Fun Dip is one of my uh, most, uh, it gives me shivers whenever I look at it. It's straight sugary powder and blue dye combined. Uh, and so when you, when you eat Fun Dip, your whole mouth turns a color your mouth was never intended to be. Uh, in fact, I think there's probably some violation of natural law or something with Fun Dip. But it makes for a great look in the mirror. Other times, of course, looking in the mirror is rather terrifying. You, you look there and your hair is going in every which way or you have that just got out of bed look or, or maybe you've eaten lunch and you have lettuce stuck in your teeth or, or there was a time when my eye turned black and blue and swelled up and we look in the mirror and we're thankful for a mirror because we want to know if we're going to look like that before we go out into public. But imagine if we looked in the mirror and saw our reflection in all of its horrifying reality, and we decided that instead of doing something to fix ourselves, we would just smash the mirror, take some stones and silence it. Well, of course, that would be a terrible idea because it would do nothing to fix the problem. But that reaction is a pretty good summary of what the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees want to do when they hear Jesus' parable in Mark chapter 12. Because this parable is meant as a mirror. And the main point it reveals is that the Jewish leaders have rejected God's beloved son Jesus and can expect punishment as a result. Now as we look at this parable, we need to consider it in two parts. First, we need to look at the tenants and how they respond to the owner. And then second, we need to look at the owner and how he responds to the tenants. So we'll look at both, but let's start by looking at the tenants and their response to the owner. You'll recall that Jesus is speaking with the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple, surrounded by crowds who are listening to him here. So when it says that he began to speak to them, that's the the audience we're talking about. And it says that he spoke to them in parables, and you'll note that it uses the plural there. In fact, Matthew, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus actually told three parables, each of which had the same point. He told a parable of two sons. The first son said he would obey his father, but then he didn't. The second son said he wouldn't obey his father, but then he repented and obeyed. And Jesus' point in that parable that he told was that tax collectors and and prostitutes and sinners would go into the kingdom of God before the Jewish religious leaders. For when John came in righteousness, they did not believe him or repent, while the tax collectors and sinners did. Then he told a parable of a wedding feast and said that a king threw a wedding feast and invited many people. But when he sent his servants to bring in those invited, they refused to come and even seized and killed the servants sent to invite them. And as a result, the king destroyed those murderers and burned their city and invited different guests instead. And in the middle of those parables, Jesus told this parable of the tenants, which Mark and Lucas, sorry, Mark and Luke focus on. This parable about the owner and his vineyard and its tenants. Jesus begins by telling us that a man planted a vineyard and he, he, he set up a fence and, and a tower and, and a wine press so that it would produce good fruit. Then the owner went away and appointed tenants who would steward this blessing and bring the fruit to him. But the tenants refused to honor the owner. And Jesus describes in verses 2 through 5 what they did. Servant after servant, the owner sent to bring back fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat the first one and sent him away empty-handed. 
The second, they struck on the head and treated shamefully. And the third, they actually killed. And then, and then the text tells us that this was actually an unnumbered line of servants, one after another after another that the owner sent, but each time the tenants beat them or killed them. And anyone listening would have recognized this as the, the history of Israel, which was punished for repeatedly ignoring and persecuting God's prophets. In fact, if Jesus had stopped the parable at verse 5, everyone in his audience, the chief priests and scribes included, would have nodded in agreement and said, yes, we know this is our history. But Jesus didn't stop at verse 5. He went on to verse 6, the climax of the parable. For there we learn that after sending all of these servants, the owner, the father, had one other that he could send, and it was his own beloved son. He sent this son to the tenants to get the fruit. Now, when the owner would send a servant, the servant really had no authority himself. He was a representative of the owner, but he didn't have any any rights or legal claims himself. But the son, the son is the heir of the vineyard. And so the son had a right before the law. And so the father says, surely they will respect my son. The father's wrong. The tenants see the son coming and they say, hey, this is the son. And they immediately determined to kill him. And I want you to notice very carefully, according to this parable, why the tenants kill the son. The tenants don't kill the son because they think he's a fraud and he's just out to cheat them or cheat the owner. They don't kill the son because they didn't recognize him or they didn't realize it was the son. No, they knew it was the son and they killed him for that reason. Because he came to interrupt their system and their authority and the benefits they were getting from it. And they kill him in order to take the inheritance for themselves. And remember that right before this, Jesus had challenged the chief priests and the scribes. And he had challenged them with the ministry of John, whether it was from heaven or from man. And he pointed out to them that they should have known. In fact, they had every reason to know that the ministry of John and of Jesus was from heaven. But they didn't want that answer. And so they rejected them both. I think Jesus' conclusion is clear. He's saying to the leaders, you are rejecting what you have every reason to know. It is not that you have been left with good excuse for not recognizing the Messiah. No, he has fulfilled every promise and every prophecy. And you killed him despite that. And for that you will be judged. Anyone listening to this parable who knew the Old Testament would have heard here an echo of 2 Chronicles 36, where the Lord speaks to Israel and says that they had mocked his messengers and despised his words and scoffed at the prophets which the Lord had sent until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Jesus applied this even more particularly to the leaders in Matthew 23 when Jesus cried out, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And right after that, Jesus cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, as Jesus gives these words again and again, he is telling the religious leaders, while they thought of themselves as religious and righteous, they were actually sinning to the greatest degree because they were rejecting God's own son. And for that, judgment awaits. And I want you to pause for just a second and consider the tenant's actions. Can you imagine that you had a doctor's appointment? Maybe you had an appointment with the oncologist. And you went to the oncologist and there he brought out the results of your PET scan. Showing that you had cancer spreading throughout your body. And can you imagine having seen that PET scan? And after hearing the, the treatment that you needed in order to survive. Can you imagine if your conclusion was... I'm just going to kill the oncologist. Because to do that, of course, would have sealed your own fate and just increased your judgment in response. But that's the response of the leaders here. They've been told the truth. They've, they've been shown the person of Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promises, the Savior of Israel. But they would rather keep their way of life and what's going on for themselves. And they're willing to kill the Son of God in order to do so. But can I just ask you, if you're here this morning, every one of us needs to know the danger of responding in the same way. If you're here this morning, you're hearing about Jesus, the Son of God, the one he sent to die for you, to forgive your sins and give you eternal life. But it's possible that there would be someone here this morning who might decide that they would rather reject Jesus or ignore Jesus in order to keep living the way they want to live. And if despite the privilege of hearing God's word and knowing this Savior, you would prefer to keep living your life the way you want to rather than submit to him, then this parable is holding up a mirror to you to show you your reflection and to show the judgment that comes from such a decision. And so if that's you, I would urge you, don't smash the mirror. Don't throw out the mirror. But realize the consequences of such a decision and come, look to Jesus in faith. Well, we've looked at the tenant's response to the owner, but I want to turn secondly now to look at the owner's response to the tenants. And the first thing I want you to notice about the owner and how he treats the tenants is his persistent pursuit of the fruit of the vineyard and his extraordinary, almost illogical mercy and patience towards the tenants. Just imagine, what would happen today if an owner sent a representative to someone who was holding some of his goods and the people holding those goods beat him up and refused to give his things back? Well, what would happen is that owner is going to come immediately, probably with a contingent of law enforcement officers behind him, and he's going to blast those criminals to the moon. But this owner, our God, sends messenger after messenger after messenger in patient mercy and pursuit of the fruit of the vineyard. He sends finally even his own son in a stunning display of mercy and patience. And he does not deal with them as their sins deserve, but faithfully pursues them even at the cost of his own son's life. And if you're thinking, well, that was God's mercy towards Israel, don't, don't think that. Because if God was not merciful and patient with Israel through whom Jesus came, 
then there would be no hope for any of us. In fact, God's patience with his disobedient people is a matter of life and death for every one of us. This is his heart towards his people Israel and to everyone who would come to Jesus Christ. So don't miss the love of God that shines through this parable and the person of the owner and his patience toward these tenants. But despite his mercy and patience, the tenants still stand between the owner and his, vig- and his vineyard and reject him. And so the second action of the owner is to come and destroy those tenants. You know, to anyone listening to this story, the tenants' logic is completely ridiculous. They say, let's kill the son and then we can have the inheritance. But what owner is going to say, oh, bummer, they killed my son. I guess they just get to have the vineyard. No, of course not. Just punishment is going to await. And that's what Jesus says. In fact, Matthew in his uh, telling of this says that Jesus actually asked the crowds, what do you think that owner is going to do? And the crowds immediately say, he's going to come and destroy those tenants. And that is what Jesus says he is going to do. And the lesson is, is obvious that the just response of God to Jerusalem and to its religious leaders and those who rejected his son, just as he said in the parable of the fig tree and in the coming chapters, will be the destruction of the city and the temple and the punishment for those who reject him. So we've seen a couple of the actions of the owner, but I want you to see another in verse 9. The owner does not just leave the vineyard alone then. Jesus adds in verse 9, he will give the vineyard to others. Now this was the most shocking statement of this whole story to the people who heard it. In fact, Luke writes that when Jesus said this, the people responded by saying, surely not. But once again, this is exactly what Jesus' other parables communicated as well. In the parable of the two sons, he said, because of your disobedience, tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners will enter the kingdom before you. And in the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus says that the king will invite different guests to the son's wedding feast since those invited had rejected the invitation. And so for the Jewish leaders and the people of Jerusalem, this was the shocking revelation and the the sticking point that God's judgment on Israel would also be accompanied by the fact that tax collectors and sinners and Gentiles who humbled themselves and accepted the invitation to the banquet would enter the kingdom before them while their city was destroyed. Now I want to just offer a quick aside because it's very important to note that Jesus is not announcing the end of Israel here. You note that he says the tax collectors and sinners and Gentiles will enter before you, not instead of you. And, and you note that he says Jerusalem will be left desolate until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Romans 11, Paul asks, has God rejected his people? By no means. And as he spins out this chapter, we find that in God's one church, including Israel and the Gentiles, A remnant of Jews has believed and is saved by grace now. And a day will come when all Israel shall be saved in fulfillment of God's promises. So I just want us to know this is not God saying Israel's gone and others are in. But that God's judgment will come on them for rejecting their Savior. Well, there's one last action of the owner here and it comes in verse 10. And this action is actually the greatest thing that the owner does. 
In verse 10, Jesus looks back to Psalm 118 and declares, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And here we find that in the sovereign plan of God, He is going to take His beloved Son, the one that that the tenants rejected and put to death, and make Him the most important piece of the plan. He is going to be the key to the fulfillment of God's promises and the redemption of his people. Sort of like maybe going to a neighbor's house and you see a stunning artistic display in the foyer of their home. And then you look a little more carefully and suddenly you realize the piece right in the center was that piece of poverty you put out for free in the free box at your yard sale. You threw out. It has become this piece of gorgeous beauty now. And that's what the Lord is saying. The one you rejected is going to come the key to my redemption and my plans. In other words, the death of Jesus, the Son of God, is not the end of him. It's actually the key part of how God is going to forgive our sins and bring about our salvation. This was a surprising, awe-inspiring act of God. And, and And so the psalmist declares, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And that's what we're, de- we're invited to declare this morning. And this week, as we look ahead to, to Easter morning and Jesus' resurrection, we're invited to say this was the Lord's doing. And it will be marvelous in our eyes. You know, this would be marvelous if it was just the fact that God would send his son in sacrificial love to the point of death. But when we realize that God sent his son in sacrificial love to the point of death, that I might be saved, that he might rescue you and me and his people and bring them, bring us all to be his children forever. I mean, marvelous is too minuscule a word to describe the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He is such a savior. We could never have anticipated such mercy and grace and such a plan from him. I want us to just consider one last thing before we end. This plan of God was marvelous as it led to our salvation. But will you note that the stone that the builders rejected is not only the key for your salvation and for mine, it is the cornerstone and the key for all God's plans and purposes to be accomplished. And what I want you to consider is the fact that every one of us thinks about life and interprets life based on the story we think we're living in. And and this is what I mean by that. The truth you think about the world will tell you how to interpret what goes on. I was talking to a man in the mall once, and the man was telling me that he believed everything was just atoms and molecules. Whenever we die, that's the end. We go back into the ground, we lose consciousness, and there's nothing more. And you know, the decisions that he was making in life reflected that fact, that that is what he believed about life in the world. Just a couple of weeks ago, I talked to Richard in a coffee shop. He found out I was a pastor, and he looked at me and said, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. And he said, do you really believe what you preach? And so that's a very good question. He said, you know, I've talked to a lot of pastors who don't believe what they preach. And I said, well, I do believe what I preach. And I said, how about, how about you? Do, you? do you believe these things? And he said, well, um, to be honest, no. I've, I've lost faith in my later years because I've seen too many people suffer, and especially children. You know, his, as we talk, the story he believed he was living in is that if there was a God, that God should keep people from suffering. He should keep anything bad from happening. And if he didn't, he either must not exist or he's not worth worshiping. 
That was the story he believed he was living in, and it shaped how he responded. But will you notice the outline that our God is giving us of history, of the story we're living in? And I don't mean story as in a myth or a fable. I mean it as in the actual story of what God's doing. According to this parable, God was not content to leave us in our suffering that our sins individually and as a world have brought upon us. He went to the lengths of sending his own beloved son to suffer and be rejected and to die for our sake. Because through that death and rejection, the Lord was going to bring about a glorious redemption for his people. And he was not only going to bring about a glorious redemption for his people, he was going to save all those who turned to Christ so that one day every wrong will be righted and every tear will be wiped away in eternal joy with that Savior. That's the story we're living in. And whether it was the first century church in Rome being persecuted by Nero, or whether it's the 21st century church that looks around and sees compromise within and attacks without, whether you're one of our sister churches who sees three of its children and its teachers killed and gunned down, this story gives us comfort and hope when we are tempted to grieve and despair. Because it reminds us that in this present evil age, Jesus is rejected and God's purposes are hated and many to desire to live life their way rather than be called to account by the owner who created them. But in the end, God's purposes will stand and that very rejection of Christ will turn out to be the means of victory and glory when all God's people will be called to be with him. And when we see that brought to pass, it will be the Lord's doing And it will be marvelous in our eyes. And that's the hope and the glory of this parable this morning. The just judgment of God is presented, yes. The warning is clear. If we reject Christ, if we are without Christ, then we're left in our own sins. And and punishment is the only hope that we have. But this text doesn't just try to terrify us with the justice of God. No, it's an invitation to come to Christ, to come on rest on this cornerstone by faith, to rejoice in the salvation of our God and to put our hope in his marvelous plan, which will end in our redemption and glory if we trust in him. And that, I pray, is where each one of us is resting this morning. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word, which reminds us of the consequences of our sin, the consequences of living life our own way rather than your way. But Father, thank you for your word which reminds us that you loved us enough. You did not give us what our sins deserved, but rather sent your own son to death. That through faith in him, we might be redeemed and have hope of life with you forever. What a glorious hope we have, Lord. May we know that and trust it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.